Hi, and welcome to the Essential Tennis Podcast, your place for free, expert tennis instruction that can truly help you improve your game. My guest today on the podcast is Gyata Storman. She's the author of On the Ball, Doubles Tennis Tactics for Recreational Players. She's a coach in upstate New York, and it's great to have you on the show, Gyata. Thanks, Ian. Thanks for having me. I'm a big fan of your podcast. Well, I'm, it's a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for the work that you put into On the Ball. We were just discussing a little bit about the writing process before we clicked record here. And I spent a bunch of time this afternoon before our conversation going through the material. And I got to say, it's super comprehensive. It's very, you've gone through a lot of trouble to try to pick apart every type of a variation of position and formation and shot selection and in doubles, that's a massive undertaking. So congrats on putting everything together in in one resource. It's extremely practical and, and very easy to use. So, so well done. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about why, why did you write this book? It's a, it's a massive undertaking so why why go to the effort? Well, I learned a lot about doubles from books. Um, where I was located in upstate New York, they weren't really doubles coaches. In fact, when I was really learning to play doubles, there wasn't that much around anywhere. Mm. Um, it, it's interesting. I mean, when I said I learned, I really learned in the 2000s, you know, after I'd played college tennis, which was in the early 80s, and played a lot of recreational doubles, it wasn't until much later that I started studying the game. Um, now, that didn't answer your question, why I wrote the book. I, um, I love doubles. It's a passion project, absolutely. I get you know, frustrated when people don't know simple things. So all my little pet peeves are in there. <laughs> I had uh, <laughs> got them off your chest. It's a way to put them in without directing them at anyone in particular. <laughs> so that was fun. Yeah. Um, I had also spent a, uh, quite a bit of time um, studying the work of Louis Caillé and Halle um, Sare, her book Dynamite Doubles. And the books were complicated. Like they took me two or three times to to get through them, and I just wanted to create something for everybody for all different levels and um, finally, I'm a sociologist by training, so I learned how to organize material back then hmm. and had written research reports in the past, so I wanted to do something that was my own rather than something from my employer. Awesome. I love it. It's got to be incredibly satisfying to put all those things into one place and to actually hold it in your hand to be able to give it to to other people and and hear back stories from other people who've benefited from it has got to be an incredible thing. So congratulations on that. Why why doubles? Why so many tennis players out there? And I I feel like most people gravitate more towards one or the other, singles or doubles. And I think doubles players tend to be a certain type of person. I'm curious, what was it for you that really drew you towards doubles specifically? Well, the main thing is I was naturally much better at it. <laughs> I can relate um, to that. <laughs> <laughs> I actually won a doubles championship at the age of 14 in Canada, um, the Canadian Nationals, with a partner I didn't know, just on purely like loving to get into net and hit volleys. And um, in college, I did much, much better in doubles. So naturally, my game's more suited to it. But I also am the kind of person that likes to play with a partner. Mentally, I just have an easier time with that support. And I know there's some people that, you know, find it kind of a lot of pressure to have a partner. Not me. <laughs> I love having the partner. And and finally, I coach adults. I coach mainly adult women. And they're primarily playing doubles. Yeah, absolutely. 
let's let's talk about that right off the bat. In in your book, you talk about there's a couple pages on how to support your your doubles partner. You're just talking about that maybe a little bit of pressure or a feeling of responsibility to do a good job as a as a partner. In your mind, what what makes a supportive partner? What should our our listeners be making sure to do and not do in order to to do a good job as a partner? I mean, first of all, we have to think about, is this a partner I'm just playing with once or twice or casually or developing a regular partnership? Um, Let's talk about the once or twice because that that happens a lot. Yeah. To, um, you know, (laughs) when I meet someone new, I just kind of get a sense for them. And really, I like to to take the time to ask, you know, how do you like to be supported on the court? Hmm. And then during the match, I kind of figure out whether they want to be more quiet in between points or whether they like to talk. I'm of the talking persuasion myself. So I do offer a lot of encouragement in between points. I, I, I never say anything negative. Um, at least as a new partner, I'm really careful to watch out for that. Um, really, in a match, you know, even though I'm a coach who knows a lot of the tactics, I certainly don't try and coach my partner. <laughs> um, on the, the changeovers, I, I make sure they're going to stay with me. You know, sometimes a partner drifts and starts talking to the neighbors or whatever. If it's a match, I want to be with my partner and I do talk then. Um, do you feel like your, your background as a sociologist has, has helped you in your ability to, to work with a partner closely and, and be successful? Um, it could be the sociology that was many years ago. I, I also have spent a lot of time, um, in relationships with people. I did a, counseling training at one time. I've led groups, taught yoga, you know, worked a lot with people, all those things just makes it really important to me to to feel comfortable and help my partner feel comfortable. Um, Sometimes it gets to be kind of a lot of work. So really (laughs) I prefer to have a regular partner. Sure. And um, in the preface to my book, I acknowledge Jan-Marie Vick, who was my regular partner for 10 years, and um, she moved away. We didn't actually break up. (laughs) But um, she and I figured out a lot of this stuff, especially the the stuff on staggered offense, which um, we can get to later. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, with a regular partner... So then you can really get into the nitty gritty. Like I work with a team who a doubles team who are best friends. And um, earlier this year, I started to like, they both started to talk to me about issues with their partner. And I'm like, wait a second. I think we need to sit down and have a chat. <laughs> and I actually facilitated a meeting with them awesome. where they just cleared so they hadn't been talking each other about and sure enough their partnership solidified their game got stronger and they got happier too so that was that was really a success and i would certainly recommend that to any partners that you know are are withholding stuff from each other is to just sit down and talk it out you know what what's going well what do we need to work on and just reaffirm the commitment that we want to play together I feel like that's so hard without getting making this into like a couch uh, session. Uh, I I feel like that's so hard in a club environment where there there tends to be a lot of social pressure and there tends to be drama a lot of times, depending on the club and depending on the team and politics and and whatnot back and forth. Um, but I, I love your description a moment ago of the primary focus or job is simply to be to make them feel comfortable. And 
Yeah, I've I've had that same uh, experience as a club teaching pro of partners just not being on the same page, but instead of going to each other, they they kind of go to other people. How and kind of going back to what you mentioned before, actually, you talked about actually just asking outright, which I think is fantastic. Hey, how do you like to be supported? What other tips do you have as far as transparency and and just kind of laying all the cards on the table to to be to have the best shot of being on the same page and being successful? That reminds me of playing at senior nationals. And I had a partner who was my regular partner for the tournament, but she was from Burlington and I'm from near Syracuse. So we hadn't played together much. And at the time I was really having trouble with my serves. Um, mentally, I would, when I, got tight in the match I'd get nervous and double falls at stupid times and it was hard it was painful and before we started playing these matches I I came out to this partner and told her I'm struggling with this right now Mm. and um she was like so calm and so supportive. I can't remember exactly what she said, and I wish I did because it was the most helpful thing anyone ever said to me. Mm. But it was just letting me off the hook. Awesome. And, um, you know, I still had some difficulties in that tournament because it was a thing back then. But it was, it certainly went more smoothly. So being really honest, you know, before we went into the matches really, really helped. Awesome. I love that concept or phrase of, of being let off the hook. I, I feel like if we can just do that for our partners, then because it, I feel like that's where so much of the tension and, and anxiety comes from is just simply not wanting to let the other person down. And so kudos to you for being transparent and vulnerable and, and putting it out there and saying, well, I'm really struggling with this right now. That's not easy for people to do, especially when they feel pressure to uh, be in that, that uh, maybe a leadership role or, or certainly a partnership role and wanting to kind of keep up your end of the bargain. Um, let's shift gears a little bit and talk okay. about geometry and different sp- spots on the court and also the ball traveling back and forth. I like your concept of the shot cycle. Can you please describe that and tell us why it's important for doubles players? Sure. Uh, the shot cycle is not just for doubles players. It's good for everyone. It's the building blocks of a tennis point. And I feel pretty fortunate to have um, initially trained in the Canadian system back in 1995. And that's where I learned about the shot cycle. And at that point, they had a sending and a receiving and a centering. And... Um, it, it somehow is something that I've carried with with me since then. And the Canadian system still uses it, but it's changed somewhat. So I developed or, or modified, you know, their material and developed a three-part shot cycle. So it, it begins with the centering moment. And that's what happens every time you serve. You actually have more than a moment to get centered. Um, But after that, it's every time the opponent hits the ball, there's a a split second where you make a split step. And if you're centered here in your mind and also with your racket in the ready position, you have a much better chance of making the shot. But before you actually get into the, the hitting part of the shot, which is the bit we always like to think about and when you see pictures... You know, it it always has the ball in the picture. Well, before that, there's the whole receiving phase. And um, the first part of that is judging the ball. And I teach brand-new adult beginners. And in the beginning, most players, they see the ball come and they run towards it. You know, no conception of how the ball travels. So the ability to judge the ball is, is huge. Is it difficult? Is it easy? Do I need to run forward, back? At the same time, we start moving into position. And again, oftentimes that's back. Um, 
and the third part is taking the racket back. So that all occurs in a split second. Then we get into the sending phase, the, the hitting, the follow-through, and probably my favorite is the recovery, which is sits within the sending phase. And that's the time we have after we hit the ball and before the opponent hits the ball to get back to what I call our home, which is the optimal place on the court to center. Hmm. How did I do? <laughs> when we're not, when, when you can't see it visually, I, I hope I was able to describe that. Yeah, absolutely. You, you did great. And it's interesting that you picked out the, the uh, recovery. I'm sorry, was, did you say it was recovery that was your favorite? Well, the centering moment's my favorite, but the recovery part that sits inside the sending phase gotcha. is also my favorite. I, I gotcha, I gotcha. Yeah, I, I love the, your description of centering in the book. And I also like how you explained that even though it only lasts a fraction of a second, you devoted a whole third of the the shot cycle to it because it's so important. And yet, in, in my experience coaching amateur athletes, so few players give any attention or focus or credence to that part of the cycle, in particular because the split step is so absent in my experience from the games of amateur athletes, has that been tr- true for you as well? And, and if so, how do you go about coaching your, your players to, to use the split step and, and be more centered or in general, if the split step hasn't been a problem for you, how, how do you get your players to be better at that centering part of the cycle? Well, first of all, I'll say that even though I started playing in 1970, I didn't learn until my coaching training in 1995 that you're meant to split step every time the opponent hits the ball. Hmm. I knew about the split step, but I thought it was only on a serve and volley or when you were receiving a serve. So that's interesting. Yeah. Um, I find that um, I teach brand new beginners and I teach the concept of the split step right from the beginning, even though it doesn't necessarily happen in the beginning. But I put out red or green or yellow dots where their ideal home should be. That's the place to come back to, to recover to after each shot. And tell them that that's where they should split step. Now, in the beginning, actually getting the ready position is more important than the split step because to get that racket out in front in the middle and, and have awareness of the non-dominant hand, you know, on the throat of the racket, that takes quite a bit of development. So I'm okay that the split step doesn't happen right away, but I definitely keep talking about it. And you understand this as well, but when players are ready, it, it comes. So one of my new beginners this time, um, I started talking about using lots of little steps and I demonstrated to her how many steps I take and she began to do it, you know? So I think um, understanding that players will get this at a different point, but to keep mentioning it, to to keep reminding how important it is. Absolutely. So as players are moving through that cycle, um, you've broken the court in your book into three different geographical zones or different kind of that represent different phases. Why, why are those important to understand? And in your coaching experience, how do you see players kind of mix those up or um, maybe try the wrong shots relative to where they are on the court? Where do you see players misunderstand their position the most? Um, so the zones we're talking about, I actually took these zones directly from Helle Sparry's work. So, um, she divides the court into geographical zones, Mm -hmm. um, at the back court is the defense, the middle court, which we've known as no man's land is the transition zone. The main part when you're up at that is the offense zone. 
And then the very front of the net is the attack zone, which is the best place to hit a winning volley from. So your question, the one of the most common uh, difficulties that recreational, I see among recreational players is they sneak into the transition zone as the point progresses. And this is when they're playing the baseline. So like in a one up and one back point and then get caught by a deep ball at their feet. Sure. It, it's so training a player to come back to a home behind the baseline is one of the first things I do when I start working with a new player. Um, sometimes people are worried about, you know, the ability to get into net on a short ball and that's why they're doing it. And then we need to work on moving for the short ball as well. But coming back to that home just behind the baseline um, is one of the first, first things. Um, so, so that that's the hanging out in the transition zone. Um, you can hit a ball in the transition zone, but then the next step is encouraging players to move through it to get to a home in the offense zone, which is up at net. And one of the most common errors is players maybe starting close enough to net at the beginning of the point. Mm-hmm. And now I'm talking about the net player. Um, but then backing up as the point goes on, very common. <laughs> Absolutely. And how do you work with your players on, on developing a little more confidence or uh, competence or comfort level up there in that offense and, and attacking zone, as, especially early on? What, what kind of drills or mindsets or coaching do you use to help players? Uh, I guess two parts to the question. Uh, number one, just be comfortable even starting there in the first place and, and uh, being authoritative instead of uh, tentative and sneaking away. And then number two, what kind of drills or approach do you use to help players make their way through that transition zone more effectively so they can move from defense to offense? So now we're getting into coming both up to net, I think. Um, Let's start with the first the first part. Yeah. Just getting a player to stay up at net. The net player that's already started up at net, say server's partner. I um I use the the dots on the court a lot and show people if a point has progressed and they've missed a volley, I, I get them to look at where their feet are and often they might be close to the service line. So they can see they weren't actually at their home. Mm. Um, but once, um, once the second player comes into net, this is where the player that's already up at net has a tendency to want to back up because of fear of the lob. Sure. And one of the main reasons I wrote the book is because I discovered staggered offense and now Gigi Fernandez also has developed a staggered formation. And I just think it's a fantastic way to play. And it's a complete um, shift. It's a paradigm shift from what most of us learned as kids and is still being caught, taught, which is called the wall formation. So in staggered formation, when the baseline player comes in, as long as that player has hit cross court, they're responsible for covering the lobs. That includes the lobs over their partner's head. And this gives the net player the confidence to stay up closer because they are not responsible for covering the lob. Their responsibility is to cut off cross court balls and also pay attention to the alley, not to let things go down there that they could otherwise catch. Um, now, <laughs> teaching staggered offense takes some time. takes some time to get the hang of it because it's, it feels very different if we've never previously known that who, who is going to cover the lob. There's always a little fear of that. Sure. 
So that was the first part of the question. <laughs> um, the second is what what drills do I use? It it so depends on the level. Just to get players used to playing from the, the correct position in the middle of the service box. In warm-up, especially among lower-level players, but I like doing this myself, I love cross-court mini-tennis volleys. That means one player is at net and the other is at the service line just volleying cross-court. And it gets you hitting all the different angles you need, the cross-court angles you need. So that's that's a drill I love. Um, there is a whole chapter of, on drills in my book. Yeah. Um, because I, I am one of these people, I love to practice. And when I was working with Anne-Marie and I, we, we practiced a lot and figured out all kinds of ways to practice with each other without having a coach. And that's what the drills in my book are, are aimed for, although coaches can come and become the theater and, and use these same, same drills. So... Basically, my main format for a drill is I start in one up, one back, and perhaps feed an approach shot. From that, we can work on approach shots. We can work on staggered formation, or we can work on covering the lob. Um, there's nothing really fancy needed, just a lot of repetition. Yeah, I'd love to go back to the, the staggered formation because I, I find that whole framework super interesting and I love the idea of assigning roles to different players just so they're very clear on on who covers what and just to make sure that it's clear for everybody listening at, at home staggered uh, just simply means one player is closer than than the other and in your book uh, you've defined those you've kind of named them the terminator and the workhorse as having different roles and as the, the closer player and the player who's just a little bit further back. Can you please expand on that a little bit and let people know what are those different responsibilities and, and why is it so important that both players are clear on, on what those are? Sure. Um, the Terminator and Workhorse, again, I got those names from Heli Spari's book. Um, and I use them because I had been using them all these years. And it, it helps to have names. Um, although I, I ran into one doubles team who, who used um, Staggerman and Batman as their names. <laughs> and I've heard, I've heard Little Dog and Big Dog. You know, so it doesn't matter what you call them. You just got to have <laughs> the same understanding. The Terminator is generally going to be the server's partner and the receiver's partner. They're the ones that start up close to net, although receiver's partner doesn't start up at net immediately. They move in, if possible. And the definition of a terminator is the person, the player that's directly across from the ball in the opponent's court. So in a doubles point, as long as the point remains cross-court, server's partner and receiver's partner will be the terminator. And if they come into net, or if one of them comes into net, receiver or server will be the workhorse. Now, if there's a change of direction by a lob or a down-the-line shot, then the roles change. But the reason for this particular role, is very specific, is that once the server or receiver comes in on a cross-court shot, they're then in position to cover the cross-court lob. And that's the lob that's easiest to hit. And it's really difficult to cover if you're the other player because you're having to chase down a lob that's moving away from you. Um, whereas for the workhorse, who's the player that's going to be responsible for all the deep lobs, to cover a lob that's going straight over the Terminator's head is possible. You know, it's not moving away in a cross-court direction. Um, the cross the the workhorse then the definition is definition is that you are cross-court from the ball, diagonal to the ball. 
Gotcha. So uh, if the if the point stays uh, on direction or or on plane, and and a, just a cross court exchange happens back and forth, then the person who started the point on each side, the server and the receiver, those are the two workhorse players, correct? Correct. Assuming you're starting in a regular formation, of course. <laughs> Good point. Yeah, we'll get to yeah we'll get to other uh, formations. Yeah. Um, awesome. And so what's um, I would assume that maybe one of the things that might cause confusion at first for people first learning this would be a terminator player, the player who started closer to the net, mm-hmm. receiving a lob, but that isn't maybe fantastic, and they they have a play at. I, I'm assuming that you really encourage that terminator uh, player to take as many overheads as as possible. Um, is, is that the case, or what? What's your approach on on lobs that are hittable by the the terminator? That's a good question. Lobs that are easy for the Terminator to take, absolutely, they should take them. But if the Terminator is going to be pulled back two or three steps, um, or definitely pulled back behind the service line, that's the job of the workhorse. And that is really different for people to get. Mm. Um, Now, why, you might ask? Well, and we're talking recreational players, you know, as the levels get higher, you know, four, five, five, oh, and if you have a good overhead, well, maybe there's exceptions, but for the most part, if a player hits an overhead from behind the service line, it's not going to be a great overhead. And then that player's out of position. And if it's not a great overhead, it's likely to get nailed. The other reason for leaving these sort of medium balls that the net player could reach, but it's going to be difficult, is for the clarity of the system. You know, it, it the workhorse knows that is their role and um, often can get the ball in the air if it's not too deep a log. And that, at that point, can just drive it down the line and... Um, both players maintain their position at net. Gotcha. So generally speaking, are you guiding your players or encouraging your players or drilling and training your players in the direction of achieving that staggered position up at the net? Or in my experience, coaching club uh, doubles and and team doubles, there's kind of a strong uh, magnetic pull towards um, staying in a comfortable one-up, one-back uh, formation, and just kind of oh, if I get a short ball, I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and transition forwards, obviously. But there's not a lot of pressure a lot of times to move into the net. I'm just curious um, how much or how little you encourage your players to become comfortable actively transitioning forwards to achieve that that staggered position up at the net. Well, on one hand. I hear a lot of coaches pushing players to get to net. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think sometimes pushing before they're ready. Okay. So I do think it's really important to establish a good, strong, comfortable one-up, one-back game, which is why I devote a whole chapter, which is basically a fifth of the book, yeah. to one-up, one-back. At the same time, pretty early on, like beginning 3-0 level, I'm teaching them about workhorse and terminator and in practice doing drills to get them in. But I don't sort of expect them to do that in matches right off the bat because it takes some time to develop those double skills, those volley skills. Now, if I start working with 3-5 players, some of them may well already have those double skills, um, volley skills, to be able to volley from a position that's a little further back than they're used to and to consistently volley cross court, you know, in that case, I would encourage them to, to get up mm. as quickly as possible. It, it, it certainly, it, it takes time to develop a both up game. There's, there's a reason why players are reluctant to do it. <laughs> sure. And, um, oftentimes that's a lob and oftentimes it's just getting beaten by a drive and, the ability to consistently volley. Hmm. 
Well, I love the 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 staggered position is something that I've I've heard taught many times before. It's something that, to be honest, I I haven't dove into using myself in, in my own coaching. And your book on the ball for me is the first place where I've really seen it outlined and explained in detail in a very systematic way. And so I really appreciated how how you laid it out very much. I can absolutely see the benefits of it, it communicating very clearly ahead of time about the lab in particular. Yeah, in my experience, that's the number one anxiety that that keeps players from being a little bit more aggressive with their transition game is they're so afraid of who who's going to get the lob uh, or both players are overly aggressive and nobody can get the lob because they're just both in like an attacking zone and they nobody is able to go back and get it so um so thanks for being so clear in, in that part of the book mm-hmm. i gotta say this this is one of the main reasons i wrote the book is i think it's a great great system i i love it but it's like it's deceptively simple. It takes quite a while to learn. Mm. And, um, I was pretty thrilled when I discovered that this is what Gigi Fernandez teaches. Mm -hmm. And, um, she contends that it's actually the way the pros play and you just can't see it because they don't have to stagger so much because they're really, really good at getting those lobs. So I think, you know, we have a great, great, spokesperson for this that is going to help spread it because it, it takes time to to break down a paradigm. Um, I could imagine that one of the difficult parts for students would be shifting role, and you talk about this uh, quite a bit in the book, shifting roles from the Terminator to the workhorse when the direction of the point changes from uh, uh, maybe an ad side exchange back and forth and then somebody hitting down the line and now it's a deuce side exchange back and forth. How do you navigate that, that transition uh, point from one side to the other and one role to the other with your students? Well, quite honestly, as we've learned recently from statistics, most points don't go beyond three or four balls. So two or three, right? So, yep, so it doesn't many. really happen. It doesn't really happen that often. So yes, it's, it's confusing. And, um, people often do get, you know, if the point goes on, get into a situation where they've reversed their stagger, which makes the net, the team really susceptible to a cross court lob. Um, but, you know, the other team doesn't often notice that that's going on. They're confused, too. <laughs> so it doesn't really matter that much. Now, at the same time, part of the system is it's an art. And to learn it and play it well is blissful. So I do have, have drills where um, I just both up against both back and just work on um, playing out the points and noticing them when they needed to change. Um, and another way I like to, to get this idea um, started at least is if you start a point in Australian and approach the net, then you're going to be approaching down the line. Mm, yeah. So now server has become the Terminator and they have to run all the way in to the Terminator home, which is close to the net in the middle of the service box. So I can practice that way. The idea of, um, changing roles or when a lob goes over straight over the opposite player and the opposite team has to switch. I can do a drill where I, have the person that lobs move in straight and then they have to get all the way in and the person who was up at that has to then stagger back. So those are some, some ways to start to get the idea for changing roles um, that don't require making it to four balls or so on the point. Sure. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, last couple of questions here before we, we start to to wrap up. This next one, I I enjoyed this concept a lot. Uh, I, I love being sneaky 
and crafty maybe it's because I'm left-handed and uh, I love being offensive and aggressive and, and doubles play. And so I loved your description of what you called a magic moment in uh, doubles. Can you please describe what that is and how, how can our listeners be looking for that, that magic moment on the court? Okay. What I call the magic moment, first of all, to get clear, it's when you're playing one up, one back and you're not planning to approach off a successful lob over the net player. Mm-hmm. So if I, let's say I'm on the, the deuce court, and I successfully lob over the net player that's right in front of me, they're going to have to switch. And at a certain moment when they switch, the baseline player cannot see what's going on because the net player is in front of him or her. And this gives the opportunity for the net player that's up at net to move right to the middle of the court and um, okay, right to the middle of the court, a little further back, like maybe at about the T, and take anything that gets sent up because, of course, if it's a decent log, it's liable to be a weak shot. And um, there's just that that one moment as they cross. I love it. They're not, you know, if they're not going to be able to hit cross court because the partner's in front, they can't see what's going on. The opponents can't see what's going on. So it's, um, it's a fun play. And one thing I like about this play is you can do it even if you don't know your partner, as long as they're not the kind of partner that approaches the net off, off their successful lob, you know, I can hop into the middle of the court and no one's any the wiser. I love it. Yeah, I get excited just hearing you describe that <laughs> that setup. Um, I love little sneaky, tricky, uh, kind of next-level awareness tricks or plays like that. And there's so many of those opportunities on the court. And in my opinion and in my experience, just having a few of those individual little sneaky plays can really make a huge difference. And I feel like it's those players that just kind of have a knack for figuring out how to win matches. Uh, the ones that can just be a little bit below the radar, just a, a half a second, you know, ahead of the rally, uh, looking ahead, one more shot, you know, whatever analogy you want to use. And so those kinds of, of kind of sneaky awareness plays, I, I really love. Uh, anything else come to mind for you that's it's kind of in the same, the same category? Well, for me, one of my specialties is I've got good hands and I, I pick up all kinds of balls. And actually, it's because I know where to be. I, I know how to get centered and be ready mm-hmm. and where the best place to be in the court is when the opponent hits the ball. So to me, I mean, it's not a sneaky trick. It's, it's years of training. But again, we come back to the shot cycle that... Um, you know, the place, there's an optimal place to be every time the opponent hits the ball. And the more we can train that in and get the split step and the alertness and the, the calm mind going, you know, the, the more balls are going to get back. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's not sneaky if you're aware of the dynamic on the court. <laughs> but if the other uh, three players are not aware and you are, then all of a sudden you kind of look like a genius out there. And uh, I love training uh, players and seeing them convert on, on stuff like that is is a lot of fun. Um, I want to wrap up where you kind of finished the the book, Yada, and that is with with training and, and, and practice. What What are the biggest mistakes that you see amateur athletes make when they go out there to practice and, and train for their doubles game? Well, they don't practice. There you <laughs> um, go. <laughs> most, play- <laughs> most players just go out and play practice matches and think um, that's going to improve. And, and to a certain extent, it can help you get used to a new partner. And that's important. But to, to learn new tactics and, and, of course, techniques, a whole different ball game that takes even longer. Um, it, it, it takes 
practice outside of match play. And um, just the practice of hitting cross courts and playing out cross court points is so valuable for doubles, cross courts for singles too, of course. Um, you know, when I was young, we didn't know a lot of drills, but we knew how to hit cross court and down the line. And even that basic practice helps free up strokes and, and just, I think, make us more relaxed on the court. Um, I guess also practice, you know, practice is fun. And for people who like a workout, you you can hit way more balls in practice than a match. And um, once you get creative, you know, if if you're the kind of person that doesn't like to do the same practice all the time, there's lots of ways to change it up and, and have fun with it. And you could also be competitive in your practice and keep score, but working on specific skills. I love it. Yeah, and you gave one example earlier in our conversation about the the short court volleys. Can you leave us with maybe just one or two other ideas that are are easy and fun and and bring a a narrow focus to something that's really important for doubles players? Well, everyone loves the dogfight. Just starting four on the service line. And if there's a, a pro there to start the ball, fine. If not, start the ball. And then everyone moves in. And Well, unless you hit a high ball, then you don't want to move in um, and, and play out the point. It's, it's just all levels of players seem to love this drill. And I will mention that in dogfight, when all four are up, there's no stagger anymore. Hmm. It's, it's too quick to figure out the stagger. Um, so it's just a matter of challenging the moving in. Um, but something else, I think, um, I think it's really fun to practice the different formations and to give that some time. And in my book, I talk a lot about Australian because that's the easiest one to start with as opposed to eye formation. Yeah. Um, but I think just points starting in I formation again and again and again, you know, great way to practice and, and get confidence so that when you use that in a match, you'll actually win points because, um, you know, you, you know how it works. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. I'm a huge advocate for, for Australian. Um, cause as, as you mentioned, so much more simple and less challenging physically and, uh, mentally and not having to hit over somebody's head and no, no needing to crouch, uh, crouch way down. So yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, so few players are comfortable using different formations. So really glad that you threw that in there. Um, yeah, I, I, go ahead. I actually, um, my next little book is going to be a ebook. It'll be shorter and it will be on the I formation because I love the I formation, but you got to know how to play Australian first. Yeah, I totally agree. Great stuff. All right, uh, Giata, can you please tell us where where's the best place to check out on the ball? Where should players be going to to pick it up? And and also, where's the best place to learn more about you and and, and what you're up to? Sure. Um, what I'd really appreciate is if people are interested and inspired by you know what I've been talking about is to subscribe to my newsletter. I just twice a month, I send out some inspiring words, and I created a special landing page for you guys, www.ontheballbook/essential. Nice. So um, my website, yeah, that's my website, um, ontheballbook.com. Um, you can also reach me at ontheballbook at gmail, and um, you can pick up the book on Amazon. I'm also totally happy to sell them directly if people want to buy books for their team and I can give you a discount then. Um, one other thing I'd really like to ask is, and you're, you're going to get this soon, Ian, when your book comes out. If, if you buy the book and you like it, please leave me a review on Amazon. It's, it's remarkably hard to get people to leave reviews it is. and it's really, really important. Yeah, I've heard that over and over again uh, from from authors. Um, but 
it looks like you have a fantastic start on on Amazon. Some great reviews. My favorite one was uh, had the title "A Doubles Coach in Your Tennis Bag," which I think is a great a great description for for on the ball. So, congrats yeah. to everything, Giata. Yeah, and I just checked out uh, ontheballbook.com/essential. Really impressive that you set up a, a landing page there. And uh, thanks for the the PDF that listeners can go and, and check out and, and download. Um, you've done a lot of tremendous work, so thank you so much. Uh, any final words or thoughts, that anything that we haven't touched on that you think is important? You know, I do want to say in this book, I've done the best job I could do at synthesizing information that I've been studying for about 10 years and running it through my experience in coaching and playing to come up with a, a book that's really honest about the best way to play doubles. At least as I, at least as I see it. Um, yeah. So I, I want, I want your listeners to know that there's always exceptions and there's always different ways to look at things, but I've done my best to create a book that will give you an overview of high percentage tasks. That's really going to, help you enjoy and um, probably have more success at doubles play. I think it really comes through in, in the work, Giada, and thank you so much for the time that you've taken to put it together and, and put it out into the world. I appreciate it, and players are clearly benefiting from it uh, already. So I wish you nothing but the best uh, with the book. Again, everybody, that was ontheballbook.com slash essential. Go check that out and uh, sign up for the free PDF. And ontheballbook.com uh, is where you can learn more about Giata and what she's up to. Um, thank you so much for your time today, Giata, and uh, really enjoyed our conversation and, and best of luck with everything. Yes, you as well. Thank you, Ian. For more free game-improving instruction, be sure to check out EssentialTennis.com, where you'll find hundreds of video, audio, and written lessons. Also, be sure to subscribe to Essential Tennis on iTunes and YouTube, where we are the number one resource in the world, providing passionate instruction for passionate tennis players. Thank you so much for listening today. Take care, and good luck with your tennis.